Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. People are complicated. Some of my best friends are fairly complicated people. My guest today is Paul Hefty. In addition to being one of the most elegant musicians I've ever met, Paul is a good friend, and he was the first guitar teacher to take me from clueless to not entirely unlistenable. Paul comes by his talent honestly. Both of his parents were musicians. His father, Neil Hefty, was a well-known jazz composer, a true musician's musician. Some of us grew up listening to the greats on vinyl. Paul grew up listening to the greats talking shop and telling tales right there in his own childhood living room. So, how do you like learning to fail? Have you learned to like failing, or do you fail to like learning? Whatever the case, thank you for listening. Please keep tuning in weekly and help us to reach more people by telling them. I love reading reviews on iTunes. If you haven't already done so, please take a moment to rate our podcast and write a review of your own. It's free, but it's invaluable. Make sure you check out our website, ltfpod.com, and visit our Amazon page every time you buy anything online. By clicking on our link before you shop, you can support the podcast without spending a nickel of your own money. You can also drop a dime on our donation page. Every little bit helps. As always, the most important thing you can do is simply to listen to the podcast and inspire others to do the same. We encourage everyone to try learning to fail with or without adult supervision. And now it's time to get down with one of my favorite people in the world, Paul Hefty. I'd only seen him a couple of times in the last 13 years, but we have one of those friendships that picks up right where we leave off, no matter how long it's been. Hey, you. What's her name again? Zandunga. Oh, we didn't give her this name. Oh, she no, came with That's the name of a, a Mexican song from Oaxaca. Okay. And the breeders named her Zandunga. We bought her six weeks before we were allowed to legally take her. So we had six weeks to get used to the name. And we got used to it, so we're not changing it. But It's a cool name. It's a very cool name. Yeah. Yeah. It's a song. I think you can't beat that. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing at all. So when are we allowed to start talking? Like, is this okay? We're not allowed, and and I won't be at this volume. That's for sure. Okay. So we're yep. gonna have to chill. Okay. Uh, Denise is doing an audition. It's not a gig, so it doesn't matter that there's some slight noises coming in, as long as we don't disturb her flow. And actually, this is kind of a watermark on the audition because sometimes they use the audition and don't pay the uh, person and uh, they just slap you, you know, so. Do they really? Uh, yeah, so people very often when they do auditions, they, uh, before they bounce it, they put like some sort of watermark underneath it, like maybe every 15 seconds a bell happens or something, or you have some white noise under something, crickets, whatever, you That's know. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really, because there's a, everybody's thieving. Or let's say all the thieves are in the thieving business. And uh, there you go. So what business is Denise in? The voiceover business. Okay. Yeah. 
And she does in Spanish speaking voiceover. She's got a beautiful voice. I mean, oh, that she does. Yeah. She does. Uh, when I came into LA, and I would have, I would have slung coffee at Starbucks to stay here. When I came back from Santa Barbara, and the first job I got was in a voiceover studio. You know, and I didn't know. I had never been a, an engineer. I had never. I noticed when I was there that they didn't have any tape machines. And I'm looking at this computer that's, you know, running Pro Tools. And uh, so I talked to the boss afterwards and I said, you know, I have no experience as an engineer or, and I've never touched a computer in my life. So I just want to let you know. And he just went, we'll train you. And uh, it's like, okay, it's all done. And the first day at work, I met 50 to 100 Spanish-speaking people coming in to do their daily work, right. including Denise. What a world of people. I bet. What a world. Yeah. They, they do the same thing that Americans do at one-tenth the pay. <laughs> they're paid horribly. I thought you were going to say pace, but you said pay. Pay. Yeah. Oh, so they're going five times the pace right. of white people because they have to. They have to do five times the work just to live. And it's uh, unfair, but you, you, you pick the job. It's not like the old days where they told you you're going to be a sharecropper for the next hundred years, and so were your kids. You know, we get to choose the job. So uh, all these Hispanic people decided it was better to come to the United States and do voiceover than to stay in their Latin countries. So, okay, and they can go back. If if it's not as good here as it was there, and they don't, and they don't, because it's better here than it was there, even though it's intolerable here for them. Right. And so the business people, business like business people do, they exploit at every possible moment. Very few, I'd say, um, and I have don't have this estimate from actual research, but I would say one out of a hundred business people care about the other person. And, and run a, a, a pay scale that's good for the other person as well as them. And the other 99 people say, hey, if they don't like it, they can go dig a ditch for money. What, what the fuck do I care? Right. You know. And we've got one of those people in the White House running, oh, man. You know, elected. And, and he's, he, he's not a bad man. He's, I mean, I, I would never want to be near him. He's just completely unqualified. And when unqualified people get nominated to do something and i was thinking about it this morning because i got a little miffed at a friend of mine who's a republican right winger and he tries to post things to tell everybody to be calm about the things that are going down and we should just help each other and he's ignoring the bull in the china shop right. that if somebody put me in charge of a nuclear reactor and i blew up a city am i the bad guy or is the person who knowingly put me in a place where I don't belong the bad guy? It's that guy who's the bad guy. If I don't know how to run a nuclear reactor and they all put me on their shoulders and say, Paul is nuclear man, you know, and, and I do things wrong, I'm not the bad guy. It's the person who wants to prop me up there for some reason, and that reason is always financial. So they're the bad ones. They're the bad Eat yeah. the rich. Let God sort them out. I think I think Trump is also a bad guy. <laughs> right, is, right. He but he, but he's not to blame for all this. He had no intention of running for president. But it's, it's well, he, you think 
He had no intention of running or no intention of winning? Maybe both. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. No intention of winning. He wanted the fame. Yeah. To build his brand. Oh, I see. Yeah. He didn't realize he'd actually have to take responsibility for the job. And now that he's in there, uh, you know, all the people, all the criminals are going to exploit him to the ends of the earth. Yeah. Military budget went up. School budget went down. That's so sick. You know, it's like the the bad people have taken control. Pretty pretty amazing. So, uh, except for this little blast of political talk from me, I had to make a conscious decision. The moment I realized he was getting elected, take it as a, a civics lesson, and turn off all news and turn to my work. Because I'm not in the political system. I don't make my money in politics. Me spending one moment talking about politics is one moment away from what I should be doing. But this friend of mine got me going this morning and I wrote him a private message and I said, Hey, look, you're a great guy and I know you got heart and ears and eyes. Don't put such a wimpy post up there. <laughs> you know. You know, or don't post, you know, but don't wimp out, you know, and it's on my mind because you s go forward with somebody like that, their response comes, and you got to live with starting this whole brouhaha. Right. Well, you had the decency to do it privately. Oh yeah, I can't. You know, I'm not going to go online and start a war. I mean, you could have trolled him on his on his wall and then yeah, and sit here. Hey, fucker. Yeah. What, what kind of loser are you ignoring the real problem? Executive producer. <laughs> Our last dog used to just sit in a pillow thing, you know, and she'd be the executive producer. Every once in a while, she'd start licking herself and would say, hey. <laughs> but she always insisted on coming in the back room when we did any jobs, any recording. No, really? She was the executive producer. So do you have a recording studio in this house like you had in uh It's the same studio one. City? I no, just really? moved it here, sure. It's not a big one. It uh, only works for voiceover. Yeah. Uh, in the old days, I used to record my demos of my songs, but I don't do that anymore because I don't write songs anymore. I, I uh, manipulate Neil's music, so uh, I, I, I just don't do it anymore. So it's a voiceover studio on the back. A damn good one. My mom still speaks with amazing fondness of you and the time she spent with you recording her Terribles and wonderful stories. Oh, She's, that's right. Yeah. Terribles like, and wonderful. Paul was so wonderful. Do you still see him? <laughs> Please give him my fondest regard. She did it at our apartment. Uh, Not the apartment, the house on Coldwater or near. Oh, Coldwater. really? Yeah. Oh, way back when. Oh, yeah. we had a dedicated studio back then with a sound booth. Yeah. That was that was happening. Yeah. I that's back that when booth. I was taking lessons from you twice a week. Ooh, yeah. Those were that, good days. That's when. Uh, Denise would serve us dinner afterwards, and we put it on this plate, and it went right through. I'll never forget that yeah. one. You remember that? <laughs> and you looked at me and said, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> that was a moment I'll never forget. <laughs> I did. I must. I had that fear that it would happen. I didn't know it was going to break, but I just had. I did have fear of cutting into that burrito and having it land on yeah, your floor. Yeah, because you had the legs spread wide, you know, so you were having faith <laughs> that, oh, it's a plate, It's but I know it. It was in your mind, and then it actually broke through. I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> did that. it hit the floor? Or did I catch the burrito no, with my thighs? No, you caught the whole thing on the thighs in the seat. Ah, uh, yeah. Good for me. 
<laughs> Those were good days. We yeah. used Diego's room as the uh, guitar room. Oh man, as I recall, I have the fondest memories. Only the fondest memories oh, of jeez doing that. I still talk about it. I have a new guitar teacher now who I study with in Asheville. Who's really, really good. He's, nice. He's you'd be so. His life is guitar. His life is guitar and uh -huh. teaching. He really loves teaching, and he's really gifted at teaching. And uh, I tell him about you all the time, and and uh, I finally get to tell you about him a little bit, yeah. you know. And I you would love the way he teaches me guitar, because, you know, he's like I asked him to, to help me figure out one of Jerry Garcia's solos. He's like, I'll do this once. After this, you need to do it. Like, so I'll teach you how to do it, and I'll teach you why, you know. And it was a pretty short one. And it was and it was a no, solo that no, would. It would have taken me hours, hours to get it. And a Jerry Garcia solo. Oh yeah, because I'm you know shitty. And no, but you're a deadhead. I'm a total deadhead. But getting all the nuances and all, the, I couldn't find it I, on the neck. I saw Dead and Company uh, at the Bowl a couple of weeks ago, with uh, you know who they oh, are. Oh yeah, yeah, of yeah. Course. With yeah. Uh, John Mayer. John Mayer. He was Unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Okay, Denise. Nice to see you. If you want to roll tape on a, a little bit of our non-podcast uh, conversation just so that you have levels. I've oh, been rolling the whole time. Oh, you've been rolling the whole time? Yeah. Oh, great, great, yeah. great. I'm a professional. The, oh, wow. I know that I want We don't get very many up here, The, the best conversations me. are the ones that people don't know are being recorded. Uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh-huh. And I'll tell you, you know, as the dead will do, they uh, did the first set, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay. They came out for the second set. It was magic. You know, they started off with... Uh, Oh, I, I never remember the uh, I never remember the name of the tune. Ding bop bop ding da da ba da da da. Estimated profit. Estimated profit. Yeah. And my God, it was magic for an hour. They did the entire album. Oh, really? The Shake Terrapin Down Station. Or Terrapin Station. They okay. did the entire album, and they unbelievable. I couldn't believe what. Did I was they have saying. an orchestra there? Or is it just the band? Just the band. Well, because it was Hollywood Bowl, so I wasn't sure. Because like, because that Terrapin Station has the Philharmonic Orchestra playing throughout on the on okay. The studio well, maybe so, they had some pads on a yeah. uh, keyboard. Oh no, they they play it without the orchestra when they play live. But uh -huh. I was just curious because it's the Hollywood Bowl and there's the symphony there. I was just curious if maybe they actually had arranged for the symphony to it uh, to join them but i guess not. no yeah because that no, would be i would if i could see that live like if they could do that live that would be off the chain if they could do that live and it was still the old band on top of it they could get the money to do a thing like that yeah but uh anyway wow she still hasn't stepped out yet so that's okay it doesn't matter we're just okay yeah that's, well then uh, these are conversations that happen between real people not a fake thing that happens in a studio that's uh -huh. canned and that you know, is contrived. Well, no, I, I, I wasn't talking about uh, leading it, it leading to contrived conversation, but uh, just for technical no, aspects. That, that's the, but that's the beauty you know, of a we podcast. Don't really it's need. Like, oh, really? Yeah, for me. I mean, they're all different. Some. Okay. That's what I mean. Like, I, I. So I know that you. Okay. Contrived was maybe a, you know a four-letter word, but I, what I mean is like I truly just. I'm here capturing conversation with one of my best and oldest and favorite friends. That's you know? true. That's true. And, and I'm getting interviewed by the same. <laughs> I'm glad you still feel that way. Oh, I do. Yeah. You, I mean, you haven't been around here. You know, you couldn't have done anything to change my <laughs> opinion. If you were a total asshole by yeah. now, I wouldn't know. No, no. You can keep it hidden from me. The best way to maintain friendships is to leave. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. That's right. That's, that's, oh, that's how I have so many friends is I've left go a lot of places. Go to the new place. Yeah. Uh, develop something there and then mm, he's living in Pittsburgh 
people in Asheville say, Pittsburgh, wow. Isn't that Jason a great guy? Yeah, yeah, he was great. I should have spent more time with him when he was in Asheville. Yeah. Yeah. My Maybe. LA friends never had so much appreciation for me as when I left. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Maybe you were ready to get, maybe you were getting sick of us and said it's time to step on out. You know, I really wasn't like, I, I didn't realize how much. I got though. Bye. Call me on your way home or something like that. Okay, bye. Take care yeah, I will take care of Sandunga. Um, I didn't realize what an amazing and important community of friends that I had here until I left. Like, and a lot of people showed, you know, I, for the was like two or three months before I left, I was going out to dinner almost every night just to make sure I saw everybody personally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I had a going away party at a bar downtown that was equally inconvenient for everyone, but a really cool place that I kind of wanted people to know about. And part of my legacy of leaving town was introducing people to the fact that downtown LA had gotten cool. Uh -huh. And there was this great place called Pete's that had the most amazing macaroni and cheese. And this is before the gluten free craze. Uh, well, that brings back, I either remember the invitation or I went down there. It may be both. Yeah. 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 Pete's with the macaroni and cheese. You got me at macaroni and cheese. Oh, it's so good. I love that stuff. I know. Me too. I yeah. can't get enough. I'm a grown it, it, man. Even if it's like the food. typical Velveeta, really bad, I'll suck my way through it because when I was a kid, I fell in love with that macaroni and cheese too. Yeah. No, no. There is no bad macaroni and cheese. There is no such thing. Yeah. That's it's, right. It's it's almost always Give delicious. me the Swedish or give me the Italian or give me the fancy. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. So what are you doing now? Like I'm so ex – I was so happy – when I saw Hefty Plays Hefty showing up on Facebook and I yeah. saw pictures of you with a guitar in your hand and <laughs> this beautiful woman who's singing with you yes. and your debut concert. And now you seem to play every couple of three months at the same vibrato. About every two months. About every two months, mm -hmm. yeah. So um, I want to hear all about it. And, and I just want to preface it by saying very few things have made me so happy for another person than to see you diving back into your music. Ah, uh, Jason, thank you. I feel the same way. Uh, music has always been a passion. It's been a permanent part of my life. And now that I'm in the band business, <laughs> I, I, I would have to split into four people to get this job done right. Oh, yeah. And uh, I didn't say anything that a lot of businessmen don't know. You know, uh, you get into a thing like this, you want to make uh, something important successful, and you immediately have run out of all time and all spare time, uh, even, you know, for a little scratching on the side of the hip, you, you don't have time for it anymore. Yeah. So I, I, miss, I miss having loads of time to just dream. Uh, however, the dream is now to bring this band to the stage, which I did ha have happen, right. and the, to now get it on the road. That's what the band is all uh, about. Really, This isn't so much a, a labor of love only. Uh, it's the only thing that I could spend this much time on because it is a labor of love. But the whole point is, is to tour the world and get the word out and keep the music of Neil Hefty alive. There's so, a purpose to this band, right? Besides having the best time of my life on stage with great people and to feel satisfied as a musician that I'm doing everything I can do and like to do and I'm able to do using all your talents, right? Wearing four or five hats. This band is for touring and keeping the music alive. 
So for people who don't know, because that's going to be most of the people listening to this, uh-huh. who is Neil Hefty apart from being your father? Well, Neil Hefty is a, uh, uh, a kid from Omaha, Nebraska, who uh, got, uh, came from a musical family. All the boys played music. Maybe the girls played piano. But back in those days, Dust Bowl Depression era in the Midwest, uh, the guys played the music. Okay. And as bands would come through town, after all the brothers got out of high school, they'd join the bands. Hmm. And they'd go on the road with bands and try to make their mark in music and make their fortune. And Neil was one of these people. And uh, he was fired three weeks later by the band that had picked him up in Omaha because he wasn't a good enough reader, but the band had lost a player while they were touring, so they were willing to take just about anybody. Okay. And Neil was recommended because he was like king of his high school, right? right? Uh, And so he was uh, let go in northern New Jersey, and he told me he had five bucks in his pocket and a trumpet. It was sink or swim. All right. And what Neil did is uh, he decided to swim in New York, and the amazing thing is it was wartime and everybody was getting drafted and Neil was 4F having been hit by a car almost as soon as he got to New York, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, uh, and every, every, every radio station had an orchestra, every big ballroom had an orchestra, every hotel had an orchestra. Neil, my father, told me there were so many empty seats that if you were just barely comatose, you could, get you a job. could work uh, eight days a week and raise a family of four on Long Island. And uh, he started working, and uh, he was an amazingly talented man. Uh, he started working for all the very big bands, uh, the very good big bands, uh, namely Charlie Barnett. Uh, he got into Woody Herman which was the number one band in the world at the time, box office wise. Uh, Hits all over the place, the band would record. And he met my mother who had made the same trip from Boston, Massachusetts to get to New York and rise up. And she was the the Woody Herman band singer. And Neil became an arranger in the Woody Herman band as well as a trumpet player. They got married in 1945 and the world was their musical oyster. my father and, and my mother recorded about 100 sides together as a man and wife team. Wow, that's so cool. Uh, my sister was born in 49. I was born in 53. Mom retired from singing. And Neil pretty much had to pay the bills. So he accepted any kind of work. And uh, he was excellent at what he did. Uh, I'd say better than almost everybody. And he was acknowledged as such. And. Uh, Uh, He worked in television uh, and recording in New York in the 50s, moved out to Los Angeles in 1960, went to work for Frank Sinatra at Reprise Records Cool. as a producer-arranger, cut two or three records with Frank and Count Basie. And when I say cut, I mean he arranged all the tunes, picked all the tunes, and uh, produced the session. And that, that's running with some pretty high company. Yeah, no, that is. After 1963, he left Reprise Records to do his real dream, which was, uh, and the dream is always evolving in a, in a musician or in sure. anybody's life. Yeah. And he wanted to use more of what he heard in his head rather than work for other people. 
So he got into the movie business and he started scoring movies. His first movie was Sex and the Single Girl in 1964 with Tony Curtis and Natalie Wood. And I think uh, Henry Fonda was in the movie. And I need to see it now. Wow. I love Natalie Wood. Wow. She's, she's the first time I ever fell in love with someone on the screen, like truly uncontrollably in love was Natalie Wood. Ah. You know, I saw, I don't know what movie I saw. It might have, was she in Rebel uh, Without a Cause? Was I, that I'm her? not sure. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I, and I just saw her and I was like, oh my God, that is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And then I found out who it was. I'm Very like, no wonder everyone's been talking about her. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so he scored that movie. He scored that movie in about ten or twelve other movies, uh, culminating in The Odd Couple in 1968. He did the television series The Odd Couple. He squeezed in between all of these movies the theme song for Batman, hmm. which is a 1966 yeah. TV show. Became a huge hit. That song was recorded by, was the most recorded tune in the world in 1966. Meaning different bands played that song? Covered the they tune. They wanted to cover it? Okay, yeah. The Who covered the tune on their A Quick One album in 1966. I mean, come on now. That's crazy. You know, the list is long about who, who covered that tune. And uh, he retired abruptly in 1975 said he didn't want to write another note. He had done what he needed to do. And he never did write another note of music. Wow. Yeah. And, and did so, he spend time with his family? What did he do with his newfound free time? Well, Neil always spent time with his family. Funny thing of it is, uh, once we got out to Los Angeles and he was doing movies, he would write from four in the morning till eight in the morning. Okay. Because mm -hmm. he had trouble sleeping. So he'd have his day's work done. There was no escaping my father. <laughs> you know, if, if, if I was supposed to do yard work or take out the trash or something, he was never away from the house at, at the studios. Right. You know, at least he'd go there to record the work he had done, but he was always there. I could never escape him. He would always bust me. <laughs> so he always spent time with his family. Uh, I never didn't know dad for large parts of every day. That's great. I mean, yeah. that's that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. So were, he, his, were your parents together? The entire time until mom died an untimely early death in 1978. Okay. Uh, and so uh, there What's you go. I have a sister or had one. Uh, same fate for her in 1997. Yeah, there you go. So I'm the last man standing. Yeah. I met you uh, in 2000. I met you in around 2000. 2000, 2001 is when I met you. Really? You yeah. think so? Because I came back to L.A. from Santa Barbara in 94. And Franny was the first person I hooked up with. In fact, I never didn't hook up with her the years that I was gone to Santa Barbara because that's when we met. Mm. So whenever you came in contact with Franny, that's when we would have known each other. Right. Well, I moved into I moved into that house, that little guest house. Um, let me think. It would have been maybe ninety nine. Okay. 
Yeah. Okay. So Maybe I was not, married yeah, by then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You okay. were married. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So 99 and 2000 is yeah. it? I mean, I knew Good Franny month. from before, but I, I moved into that house. I think it was, I feel like it was 99. Um, I, I, I'm sure that you were a mainstay at her parties. Before then? Mm-hmm. Mm, I don't know. Oh. I don't, I don't know if I'd been there. No, I okay. met you when Franny and I had a dual Bar- D-U-A-L, not E-L. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the dual, dual barbecue at that property. I had my friends on my porch, and she had her friends on her porch. And That's then at right. the end of the night, we all we merged. We all came together. And that was the day. That was the day I heard you playing James Taylor on guitar, and oh, I forced man. you to give me lessons i said <laughs> i said i said you have to teach me guitar and you said i don't teach guitar and i said well that's you didn't used to teach guitar but now you do <laughs> <laughs> well you know that's probably the reason i was invited to the party in the first place it's always paul gotta have you over oh bring your guitar too yeah well i don't know the details but i will tell you that when i heard you play i was like that it, i want to be able to play guitar like that just your feel for the instrument mm. is, and it, i imagine it still is i haven't heard your You're band. so kind well, it's really true. I mean, it's you know, it's it's absolutely true. Um, I keep missing your. Con- I mean, I'm never here when you do a concert. I know you just did one a couple of weeks ago, right? You come in and you get out. You I get know. out quick. It's not like you bunk down for a month or so. I wish I could, man. If I didn't have this nine-year-old. Next show is July 30th. Yep, won't be here. You'll have the nine-year-old still. I will actually be at a yoga conference in Asheville on July 30th. And there you go. So, but I'm gonna figure out. I'm gonna. I need to get a little longer lead time on your schedule, and then I will make a point of coming and no what it is is i have to come to you well that's even better when, when you're ready to be on the tours, tour yeah. that's right yeah and, and that takes a while I'm, we're in brand new band yeah we've been playing for one year and uh you know the big promoters and big concerts have to be earned and we have to earn our way on the road little by little but we'll get there yeah yeah well i'm now uh i now produce a comedy show at a place called the Upcountry Brewing Company, and they do music all the time. Every night they have something. I'd love to see you on stage at a so, comedy club. Well, that will that'll happen too. Um, I'll probably open for your band. You'll when come you to come mine. To I'll Asheville. come. To, there you go. Yeah, and then I'll come and I'll play a little James Taylor before you get on. Oh, they'll you, be you, you, so happy <laughs> that you got on the stage. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> the, would, you, the applause will be incredible when I leave. <laughs> yeah, that it will. I doubt it. I well, doubt it. We'll, we'll have you play a little hefty plays after your whatever's whatever's in your heart at that moment, okay. but. Uh, yeah, no, when you're ready to tour, I mean, Asheville's a great music city and you should absolutely come absolutely. there. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I will help you find venues depending on what, Thank your, you. what your band is Thank you. commanding in terms of an audience at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who knows if I'll be booking it or if I'll have a booker. Right. You never well, know. You can always uh, give them my number and however that works. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they just talk to the club and you and I can just have dinner. Neither of us have to handle any technical. We can do many things. Yeah. So we'll work that out. Mm-hmm. So how, okay, so, so uh, I just remember, you know, I know your sister was a really big loss for you, and, and I don't know the details around your mother's death, if you don't know if you want to talk about it, but if it's something you... Details mean nothing. They're gone. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm sorry. Um, I... We had a wonderful family. We all loved each other. Each one was a special person, and each one loved the other three members, and we really supported each other. We were great friends. We had a lot of fun. So, Sure. Somebody dies before their time, which certainly happened to my sister. You don't expect that to happen. Yeah. But uh, happy to be alive. And she was a musician too, right? Right, right, right. She had, uh, she had great musical talent. Everybody in the household did. 
we were natural and we loved it at the same time. So, you know, and you get pretty good on your instrument. But, you know, it's funny about my sister. She, she used to play in coffee houses okay. in Boston, you know, uh -huh. Joni Mitchell, a little of this, you know, great stuff. And then she decided to get booked and a booking agent sent her to the Holiday Inn in Providence for her first gig at a bar there. She hated it. She couldn't stand anything about playing at a location that she had not picked or scouted out as holistically perfect for her. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, and as musicians, you got to know this. As a comedian, Same you got to know yeah. this too. You step up on whatever stage you can and uh, you should know in advance, especially back then, that they're going to be smoky places. Yeah. Everybody's going to be drinking. Not everybody's going to be listening to you. I didn't mind this stuff. My sister minded. Mm. She minded it terribly. So she became a doctor. Oh, really? Yeah. She left the music business and became an MD. Oh, I did not which know that. Which should piece scare you about some of the MDs that are out there, you know? <laughs> what I loved about my sister, she became very good. Uh, she called me one day uh, into the whole thing and said, you know, Paul, I was operating on people yesterday and I realized for the first time in my life, I'm as good of a doctor as I was a musician. Oh. And she used to play Rolling Stones in the operating theater. Oh my goodness. Operating theater, that's what yes. they call it? Uh -huh. Because there was stadium seating above? Well, well, that was the old days, you know. Uh. It's still the operating room or operating theater. She, would, she had her cassette tape. Uh, I think it was like a 90-minute tape and she would pump the tape and pump the music and that would give her the, <clears throat> yeah. the oomph. To want to do a good job. Yeah, no, you. I hear about stuff like that all the time about what yeah. the doctors like to listen to while they're yeah. operating. Oh, they listen to like, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. I never gave it a thought. Did she play? You can't always get what you want, while she was operating on people. That she, I never what you asked her the tunes, but uh, she was a big Stones freak when we were growing up, and I was a big Beatles freak. So out of her room, you would hear all the '60s Stones, and out of my room, you'd hear all the '60s Beatles. All right, and. You know, so I can only imagine what she was playing. I'm sure it was 60s. <laughs> I know a woman who I met a woman who played You Can't Always Get What You Want at her son's circumcision. Oh, really? Yeah, at his bris. <laughs> 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 so I was just curious because anyone in surgery doesn't want to be there, but they need to be. So it, it would be an appropriate musical choice if you were limiting your repertoire to the stones. I would imagine that would have to be on the 90 minute mixtape. Life can be very funny. Yeah. And usually is. Usually, especially if you let it, you know, if you That's choose right. to see the humor in it. That's right. So I tell people, and it may be a fake story, but I talk, because I feel like I heard this from you. I feel like you grew up with Count Basie's orchestra hanging out in your living room. Or at least count. Is that true? I mean, were those guys just around your life? I mean, I feel like that was, I remember hearing I don't you know tell me that. These guys were. To this okay. day, I don't know who these guys were. I just know that their skin tone was not quite so light as mine. Right. But there were others who were. What would happen is uh, Neil would start his day about noon and end it about four in the morning. And sometimes it would end at three in the morning with some of the people that he was rolling around New York City with and they'd come up to the apartment. Mm. And I'd wake up. And I'd appear at the doorway. It's like, you know, a little kid with his blankie or whatever, you know. Right. Like, what's going on here? And then, ah, uh, they'd all grab me. They'd bounce me on everybody's knee all the way around. And then, then mom would put me back to bed, you know, and everything was happy. I don't know who these people were. 
I'm sure they were the greatest musicians in the world and or their managers. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah, you, so you don't know to this day, you, know, you never no, knew who any of them no, were. And there's nobody to call and ask. Okay. And besides that, it happened all the time. Right. But that's so cool. Like, it, I mean, for you, it's almost like, ah, there were so many of them, it doesn't mean anything. But it's just, these were all the icons of the jazz era. Just, that's right. Just kicking it in your living room. I tell people Count Basie probably shot up in Paul's bathroom. Like, that's, I don't even know if he did that. But that's the intimacy that I imagine your family having with these musicians. Okay. Okay. Uh, I would say Count Basie maybe drank liquor in our bathroom because we were a, uh, an alcohol family. Okay. There were no drugs involved in anything that my father or mother did. However, uh, it's all part and parcel of the music business. You know, if you want a clean life, you know, you probably shouldn't roll with musicians. Right. Although I do consider that a clean life because it, my mind is, I consider it incredibly cleaned by, <laughs> by the beauty of creation. Right. You know, but you can create in any in any theater. You know, you don't have to be a musician to create. You know, you can be a gardener. You know, creative people. They're the ones that my family was always around. So uh, but uh, now my father had some stories that he would tell me uh, regarding drug use on the road back in the 40s when everybody was in their 20s. Mm -hmm. And some of them didn't make it out of the evening you know, as things would happen, you know, yeah. and nobody had died before, you know, and uh, youngsters in their 20s that are having fame in music, they think that they can live forever. And they don't realize that the body can blink just like that due to some strange reaction to something that was never reacted to strangely before. Right. Is that all of a sudden that day you had an intolerance to cocaine and you happened to do some and you didn't wake up, you know. So those stories were, were, were true and they happened and uh, didn't happen to dad and I'm glad. Uh, he was a, uh, he was taught to drink by Woody Herman. <laughs> <laughs> One of the best? One of the best, yes. Uh -huh. Do you know what they drank? Yes, scotch. Scotch, mm -hmm. all right, that was their. And probably any form of scotch, bourbon, whiskey, whiskey. Whiskey was their drink. Whiskey, so yeah, all, Absolutely. The, all the variations mm -hmm. on whiskey. And then I know that, uh, who, who did the Firebird Suite? Okay, I'm sorry, names are escaping me right now. That's gonna a be very working. famous man, uh, a Russian man, used to hang out with the Woody Herman band, right. and he brought vodka into the band. Okay, and that started the vodka era. So that was a whole new yeah. ushering in. Absolutely, Stravinsky. Yes, it was Stravinsky. It was Stravinsky. So yes, all these people exactly. who were just legends and ethereal figures in most of our people's lives they were just floating around your either your home or at least the dinner table conversation new york city is a great place to see everybody in one day no you know especially in your field and uh i lived in santa barbara for a while and my my promotion in santa barbara as a musician was to walk up and down state street and say hi to all the bar managers okay you know so that was a one-stop city very easy city to get work in because you could see everybody who was hiring every day. Mm. Uh, New York City is the same, or at least it was then. I'm sure it is now too. LA is quite different. Yeah. We have many city centers and they're very separate from each other. 
takes a while to get from one to the other. In New York, you're on your feet. You're hoofing it. You're walking the streets. You see Mickey Mantle. You see Joe Lewis. They come into the clubs. Neil only played and hung out with the hottest bands in the world. And so that attracted actors, book writers, all the people who wanted to be entertained and were living in New York City. See them all every day. Just coming through your home, coming through... Not coming through our home, coming, through the walking club. the streets, well, I see. coming through the clubs, where you get your hair cut two blocks from the clubs that you hang out at. Right. Because everybody gets their hair cut there. Who gets their haircuts there, you know? I think that's where Neil met Mickey Mantle. You know, that's, it's, it's that kind of a town. Uh, so cool. Yeah, yeah, very cool. So you grew up in the city. Yes. All right. Why did I? So, what was the Long Island reference? Did you? Did you? What spend was the what reference? Long Island. Did you spend? Oh uh, no, I spent uh, almost no time in Long Island. I never saw Long Island. Okay. Uh, the only time I ever saw Long Island was uh, to take a plane in or out of New York. I don't know Long Island. Okay. Uh, and that includes Queens and Brooklyn. I mean, I was, I was a Manhattan kid. And besides that, I left when I was seven. So it wasn't like I could get on the subway and go see the city okay. and have friends and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the Long Island reference uh, that we, I don't know if we were a rolling tape. Uh, we were rolling. Time. We yeah, were, but okay. Of course. It was just uh, a story that my father told me on how easy it was to get work in New York City and then raise a family out in the country, which was Long right, Island. Which was Long you know? Island at the time, yeah. That's where my mom grew up. Oh, she, really? she grew up in Great Neck, yeah. So yeah, I just didn't Great know Neck, if, Long Island. Is yeah, well-known town. Yeah, yeah. So it's. Sure. Uh, I just no. didn't know if there was a a uh, crossover there. I mean, I I found out a year into knowing this yoga teacher who's my mother's age. Mm -hmm. uh, I found out that she was from Long Island. Yeah. And she was from Great Neck. And mm -hmm. I said, "Did you know my mom, Judith Austin?" And she's like, "Your mother is Judy Austin, like." Our Judy. families were friends. Wow. Yeah, back then she was Judy. Our families yeah. were friends. My grandmother decorated this woman's mother's house. Like, How about that? And her older brother was friendly with my mom's older brother. And, and once we found that out, we've been fast. We were already developing a friendly relationship and business relationship. But when we found that out, we suddenly became family. And, you know, there are 10 million people in the greater New York area. Uh, but it's amazing the eddies and currents that bring the same sort of people together. I mean, I met this yoga teacher at Joshua Tree. Yeah, you know, uh -huh. at the, at the three thousand miles away from Great Neck. Yeah, totally. And yeah. and two generations later, you know, I mean, yeah. this and four thousand feet up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> in the desert. In the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so anyway, I just, I just, it always amazes me. Yeah. how those things come together. So I was just mm -hmm. curious if there was a, yeah. an overlap there. So when yeah, you were seven, yeah. your family, that's when your family moved to California. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. So you grew up where? You grew up in the Valley? I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Wow. I'm a Valley boy. The Valley boy. I uh -huh. like how proud of it you are. Uh, I like the Valley. I, I love the Valley. Uh, I, 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 having come from New York, I saw Los Angeles as a small country town mm. when we got here. And my first amazing thing to see in Los Angeles was the L.A. River. Okay. My sister and I were really hungry for a river, you know, ha having lived near the Hudson. Right. And the East River, you know. And we finally came, we were driving along in the valley, and we came to a sign that said, L.A. River. We hit the windows, you know, we're looking out. It's like, 
and in two seconds we were over the river and we we looked at each other and we just started laughing we couldn't right. believe what we had just seen all right a river of concrete with no water we had a little little uh, a stream a stream the down stream. the middle yeah and, and uh a notch had been cut and concreted for this little part right. of the river we had our first laugh when we saw the la river that's, that's <laughs> classic yeah, yeah there's never any water here except when it floods and then there's just too much water they, they don't know what to do with it and then the, the river would almost fill up yeah uh -huh. yeah a thing of the past it used to happen all the time didn't it, didn't we just you just have floods here in the last six months the last six months uh we had an actual rainy season yeah over the last winter yeah one out of five yeah. is not good enough for all the people here who use water as if we create it by thinking about it. Yeah. No, I know. It's it's, it's a rude awakening. And uh, they'll get you in the pocketbook, the Department of Water and Power, as they should. Yeah. But people still don't get it. You know, if they live in a condo where, uh, you know, the water is not trackable, you know, they'll take their hour in the shower and say, geez, hey, life is good. I'm in a condo. Nobody's charging me for water. Let's roll the water. Out here, we still don't get it. Yeah. And uh, maybe I'm one of them. I don't know. I'm guilty of long showers, and I conserve in a lot of other ways. Mm -hmm. I try. I mean, I take as fast as showers I can. I'm just horribly slow right. in there. Right, I'm right, very right. thorough. I like everything to be really clean. Scrubbed and clean. Scrubbed and clean. And you're such a big guy. That, uh, and it takes a while. Takes a while. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not this little person I was. <laughs> so uh, I remember I was reading a little bit on your website where it said, like, sort of the reason for creating Hefty Plays Hefty you know that and there's a history i guess and i didn't know this until i was reading about it that uh of different musicians playing composers or different bands playing composers right that's right that's right and so uh who are some of the people that are sort of best known for playing your dad's music and then you know uh, i want to then build into your motivation for doing this i think the first person who did a full album of neil's music was harry james okay and that was in the late 40s early 50s uh, then came two Count Basie albums in 57 and 58 the first one was uh, it was just called Basie with an atomic explosion on a red cover it's become now known as atomic Basie okay where Neil wrote all 11 tunes arranged all 11 tunes and produced the session it was an all Neil hefty album with the Count Basie orchestra playing it that was quickly followed up by Basie plays Hefty. The next okay, so album. The next one they gave him credit and the. They were album supposed title. to call the first album Basie plays Hefty. Oh. But uh, the uh, upper management of Roulette Records uh, caved in on their promise, and but then they made good on the second album. Okay. And then in 1961, Harry James uh, came running to Neil for another great album because Neil really knew how to utilize the uh, native uh, members of the bands of the orchestras you know and so uh they put out harry james plays neil hefty in 1961 and that was the last of the anybody plays hefty records but then you fast forward to me trying to figure out a name for the group and i wanted people to know it was an all neil hefty program for the most right. part and i didn't want to say the neil hefty orchestra because it's not an orchestra and Neil's not running it. Right. You know, so that'd be a little, uh, a little wrong promotion. And so all of a sudden I figured, well, how about Hefty Plays Hefty? 
because I'm Paul Hefty. I'm playing all of Neil's music. Right. And also that opens up the door to play my music. Oh, right. So I can, you can and we'll eventually write in uh, some of my tunes into the set. You know, if if they're applicable, I'm not going to grab a song from 20 years ago or 30 years ago that's kind of like rock and rolly, you know, right. just to to service my need to have one of my tunes on one of these albums. But I certainly had a time in my life where I wrote like Neil and I can write like him if I feel like it. And it wouldn't be a, a copy of Neil, but it would be sort of an, uh, a song with his sensibilities in it. An homage. And so those tunes can come in and uh, make Hefty Place Hefty a true uh, combination. But we've got a little of that right now. I've written lyrics to about 10 of my father's uh, instrumentals, mm. well-known instrumentals that didn't have lyrics. And so I put lyrics to them and uh, we have an upcoming recording session later in the year and I'm going to put a few of those on the uh, record. That's really exciting. Uh -huh. yeah, it is. So is there a history, like a precedent of people taking songs that were purely instrumental and adding lyrics to them? Is that a thing that exists oh, in jazz? Okay. Absolutely. Most jazz records in the old days were instrumentals, but uh, not all of them were melody driven. Okay. Uh, and very often, even though they might have been melody driven, uh, a typical thing for a jazz band is to play the head of the tune, which is the mel melody, and then they have 10 minutes of solos. And then they end the tune with the same head that they started it with. And there's your jazz song with the melodies on two ends. Right. And the space in the middle was for creative improvisation, uh, theme and variation of those melodies. But Neil's tunes more or less uh, were, his instrumental tunes were three to four minute complete melodic explorations. And they usually didn't feature a lot of blowing in between them, which is another jazz term for soloing. So uh, as it became uh, known that Neil was really writing a pop tune that jazz players were playing, uh, some, uh, some well-known uh, lyric writers wanted to write lyrics. And of course, Neil loved this because this exposed his tune to a lot of covers. You know, not too many people can cover an instrumental tune or want to. Uh, but if you have lyrics on a tune, you could have yourself a hit. And it opens up the song for all people to cover it, not just instrumental players. And since uh, any time after World War II, the vocal was the thing and not the instrumental, which happened right about 1946, uh, it's important to have uh, lyrics, good lyrics, put to your tune if your tune is accessible as a song. Got it. Neil's were. So he knew how to write a hit as well as writing a song. Absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Like that's a different talent. It's a, rela I, it's a I, related talent, but it's a different talent. Yes, indeed. It's not dependent on soloing. Yeah. But it's a song in itself. It has an A, a B, and a C part. Right. You know, the A would be the verse, the B would be the chorus, and the C would be the bridge in the middle. Yeah. Neil's tunes mostly all have this. And so it lends itself to vocals. So, there you go. Uh, that's so cool. I yeah, mean, it's very cool. I know so little. As I'm listening to you talk about it, I'm realizing how little I know about it, which is 
great for me. Like I love uh, nothing. I enjoy more than hearing about things I know nothing about, <laughs> <laughs> which is as I'm the more people I talk to, I'm learning that's a bigger and bigger uh, series of categories. And uh, but I, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, I play music very mediocrely at best. You know, I, I don't even consider myself an advanced beginner on the guitar. I, I've played with you extensively, and I know that you love the right music. I love All the right music. I just don't know how to play it. <laughs> I, I kind of don't know how to play it either. I mean, uh, my my playing chops are the first thing that went when I became an arranger and a band leader and a promoter and a booker and a leader, you know. Uh, you don't have time to write anymore, you know. So uh, there you go. It's, it's what you appreciate in music which sets you apart from people. It's tough to play. Yeah. It's tough to play. You've got to be so dedicated. Oh, I man, mean, it's uh, brutal. You know, forget vacations. I have a lovely wife uh, who would like to take a vacation, would like to plan one in seven weeks right. or in four months. It's like, honey, when you get the two, two weeks off from work, we're going to go to Cancun, you know, and visit my family and have a nice vacation. That doesn't exist. In my, I've never heard that in my household. Right. Musicians, you know, historically, we work with bands to get our traveling going. And we never know where our, we work a series of one-offs. You know, we're out of work every morning. And we're looking for work every morning. Right. And uh, the next day, it all starts over again. I don't know in four months where I'm going to be. Right, and what opportunities are going to be and there. And if somebody drops an opportunity on me, and I had a two-week prepaid vacation to Cancun or the South Seas or to Mars, I wouldn't go. I would cancel it, of course. And there's no longing in my heart. Right. I don't need to see Bora Bora. I want to get up on stage. I want to write a song. I want to do an arrangement. That's my love. And it's it trumps so everything. Great. It's so great. I can't tell you how warm I feel hearing you say that because, you know, there have been so many times in the years that I've known you that you've said, I'm done playing guitar. I put it away. You know, you, we would get together and I said, well, I w let's play together. It's what we do. It's the, that's the cornerstone of our relationship. We have a relationship and a friendship that's beyond that, but that is the bedrock of how we met and mm. one of the joys of that's right. spending time together. And, yes. and uh, so you're like, fine, I'll play until my fingers hurt. And that would sometimes take three minutes because you hadn't played in a long time. And that's you'd be right. like, that's it. I can feel it. And I refuse to tear up my fingertips for you, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be the end of it. So my point being that that's how far away from the instrument you were at different times in your life. And... Um, and I just always felt that that was tragic because I think that your relationship with music is so pure and it goes so deep. And now that I know that your mother was a singer, which I don't think I knew that before. So just knowing that, you know, and you and your father comes from generations of people playing music. Mm -hmm. And so does my mother. And so does your mother. OK, mm -hmm. so I didn't know that. So it, it's mm -hmm. truly in you. Two for, musical families. Yeah, for generations. Like the idea of you not playing music is is really wrong. Well, you know, uh, what's really right about it is if uh, you stop earning your living in music and start earning your living in something else, it's best for you to put your all into that something else. And I stopped playing music in 1986 okay. and went to work for my father in the publishing business. You know, so you can't, you, you can't have two loves in the arts and, and make a go at something. 
I'm, I mean, if, if, if I had really had hit records as, as a musician and then fell in love with music publishing, I could keep the other love going. Right. Uh, but I had to learn the business of publishing. And, and you also, you've got to move on. You've got to give up what you had before. And I had no time to play. Playing takes every moment of your time because you've got to keep the fingers in shape. Yeah. So if I'm not working, uh, I've got to practice all day long, which I intend to do as soon as I kick you out of here. Right. Uh, because I'm Good. now working in the music field. And yeah. if I get up on stage and my fingers aren't right, I'm now in hell. Yeah. And I have made my heaven, which is on stage, my hell. And I won't permit that. Conversely, when I was making the publishing business my heaven, I couldn't dirty it up with, yeah, let's work for a little while, Dad. Uh, but then I've got to go rehearse with these guys over here because I'm doing a gig at the uh, Big Cup of Joe on Saturday. Right. No good. Right. No good at all. So when you met me, I had moved down from Santa Barbara. Uh, and I was already not playing and uh, I took a job in the recording industry. I was a, a recording engineer. I was an ADR engineer and I, I had to learn everything about this and really quick, hmm. you know, there was no time for playing. When I wasn't working from nine to five, I would stay at the studio all night long and do other voiceover projects. I give my all to the business I'm in and try to advance as quickly as possible. I don't like going out for a nice easy stroll when it's work. I put my all into it and mine it for everything it has and find out if there's a future for me in it. And if it turns out that I hit that glass ceiling and I wasn't really made for that business, then I make a decision and get out. But if I don't give it my all, I don't know when I hit the ceiling, was it really a ceiling that inherently I can't get by no matter what kind of work I put into it or was it a ceiling put there by myself because I didn't give my all right and that's not clarity and clarity is everything to me at least yeah when I'm clear on something the decisions come easy they may be hard decisions but they're easy to make if I'm not clear I don't know a hard decision from an easy decision a good decision from a bad decision and I can't fall for the right reason. Because if we're doing a lot of things, we're making a lot of mistakes. Right. I've got to know that I'm all in so that these mistakes were worth something. If I look like a fool because I blew a recording session, I want to know that I gave it my all and tomorrow I will give my all to never make that mistake again. Right. So that becomes a very clear feeling. Well, that's a big thing for me is this whole uh, I mean, mistakes are a small thing. Failure is a big thing. And, that, and, and a huge part of this podcast is an exploration of failure. It's called learning to fail. I don't know. Learning if to you, fail. Yeah, that's, that's the, the name, name of the, of the podcast. And, wow. And, and I don't like to lead with that. And I don't like to, I don't like to dwell on it because uh -huh. I don't think that's, it ceases to be interesting. It's, it's, it's not the subject material of the podcast. Right. Sure. It's, but it's the, it's the. It's the, it's the background music, you know, it's uh -huh. like, it's, I like to, I love to know, like, for example, your father being fired for not being a good enough reader mm -hmm. and then going on to becoming one of the best 
composers and arrangers and conductors of jazz orchestras. Like yes. that to me was a moment for him. I was a pretty big fail mm -hmm. and he chose to, his relationship of choice with that failure was to turn it around and become the best in the business. That's right. Uh, and uh, or, or to keep working in his chosen field and learn how to be a better reader. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, maybe I don't know what a reader is. Reader of music, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that composing and writing is a higher form than reading, or is no. that not true? No, no. Okay. What it is is... Help me understand that. Uh, music in New York and in Omaha High School is different. Right. You know, a high school kid can only read so well. He was bound to be fired for not being a good enough reader because... These hot bands that originate that band originated in New York City, not from Elko, Nevada. <laughs> okay, uh, the world of so-so readers was yeah. not the world that Neil stepped into. Right, but the band was stuck. They were on tour. Now his brothers also got fired, but those bands were based. One was based in Springfield, Illinois, for example, right. and there wasn't a music scene in Springfield, Illinois that could support a person. They didn't have empty chairs in Springfield. Right. They maybe had one symphony, if they had one at all, right. you know, and those were occupied, those seats were occupied by lifetime players, you know. In New York City, uh, there were empty chairs. So he could, con my father could continue to earn a living in his chosen field. Uh, easy in New York, whereas his brothers became insurance salesmen. Got it. They had no choice. Right. We, they could have all gone back home to Omaha, but nobody wanted to. Understandably. Mm -hmm. They figured anywhere from home was better than where they were. Uh, I mean, anywhere that they were was better than home. Yeah. yeah. Anywhere away from home. That's what I understood. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And so uh, there you go. But no, reading is an art. Composing is an art. Arranging is an art. You can be an incredible composer and a horrible arranger. Right. Uh, Frank Lesser, a uh, famous musical composer. He composed the music to Guys and Dolls. You know, uh, luck be a lady tonight. Right. right? Famous Frank, made, tune, made famous by Frank Sinatra. Right. He composed this tune. He doesn't play a note of music. Frank Lesser composed tunes by having a skilled pianist by his side and he would describe feelings that he wanted at certain points and the piano player would go through ideas and Frank would said no not that no not that that that's it that's the next four measures right there and they would go piecemeal and he would do an entire musical in this fashion that's so cool uh, Irving Berlin had a piano that changed keys with foot pedals. He only played the black notes. <laughs> and he would change the keys in song, during the song, so that he could get all of his black notes into the new part of the tune. Right. Imagine this. Imagine the drive of these people and the insistence on being in their industry. Right. And their chosen love. Even though, you know, by today's standards, 
they'd have no business being in the business. But there is that person that breaks all the rules because they insist on being there. And some of them turn out to be incredibly famous. I just love the idea that, you know, rather than learn how to play the white notes as well as the black notes. <laughs> Who has time for that? He devised a system that yeah. was a total workaround. Just give me a changing piano because I'm too busy writing tunes. Yeah. And I'm too busy being one of the founding members of ASCAP, which he was in 1915. Uh, I, wow. Yeah. Wow. He wrote Alexander's Ragtime Band in 1911. You know? Give me a break. Yeah. He's the greatest. Yeah, that's totally cool. Can't, can't sit down in a piano bar and play one song through. We can't play any songs through right now. <laughs> but that'll just show you what can happen when you're clear about what you want and you insist on doing it. Yeah. So is that where you are with your life right now like you're clear on what you want and you're insisting on doing it that's absolutely. what it feels like yeah. absolutely and that's the is the first time since i've known you that that's that i felt this from you like i i get that you had this when you became an engineer like there have been other times before i knew i you. had it in music in the old days too in the old right and mm -hmm. i didn't know you then so what what kind of music were you playing when you were folk when, rock when that was you folk, folk rock? rock disco Oh, yeah? Rock and roll. Original or all covers? Or oh, both? all covers. Okay. I joined every cover band in the world, and I saw the country numerous times. Okay. The disco era was particularly incredible uh, because disco was hot. This was 1975, and the disco clubs were packed across the country. Packed. And anybody in a given town would go to that disco room right which was usually in a major hotel there like at the hyatt or the holiday inn you go to the bar there and it wasn't just a little piano bar you know it they had a band there seven nights a week and everybody dressed great the waitresses were all happy because everybody was tipping well it was a beautiful time hmm. it really was i wasn't a big fan of listening to disco but I was a big fan of playing it. As a matter of fact, disco replaced the music that I was deeply in love with and hoped would populate the rest of the universe, which was the folk rock stuff of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, you know, the birds, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was so sure that this was the new everything forever. And then all of a sudden I heard that four on the floor beat and the disco coming out. You know, yeah. it's, it's almost like polka, polka to me. Yeah. And then when it took over, I was horrified. The next thing I knew, I found out that I could make a living and see the country and play in, on stage, which was uh, something I loved to do. And I was a good player. I was a good disco player. Yeah. So what the heck? You know, I don't know where we came from on this conversation, but OK, that's right. What was that? What was my style of music in the old days? Right. So that leads to today okay. and why I have to lock myself in a practice room at this advanced age of 33 <laughs> and, and, and a third and, and a third. <laughs> that's right. Soon I'll be 45 and that'll work, too. <laughs> When and learn how to play. And, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, I'm, to oh, no, I'm spinning down the drain. Uh, uh, I'm not a jazz player. You know, that's not what I played. Okay. And although I've got a jazz mind and I hear all the chords and I know where they all are and they're so beautiful that I can cry at jazz. It's 
It's unbelievable. And of course, that was my father's uh, jazz was the pop music when he was a young guy making his bones. Right. You know, so I don't consider Neil a jazz artist. I consider him a pop artist. Mm. Uh, but here I am playing his music, which I love. And I don't have a guitarist in the band. And I'm playing guitar in the band as well as singing and leading the band on the front line with my great singer, Devin Rush. I've got to learn how to play this stuff. And I'd say it's about the hardest thing I ever tried to learn. Really? A long time ago, I was dabbling in jazz and playing a lot of jazz scales and playing jazz arpeggios and learning all the, uh, the Ted Green... Uh, systematic chord inversions, you yeah. know, so I could play any chord at any place on the guitar, right? And there are at least 28 ways to play every chord on the guitar. So you can stay in one position on the guitar and play an entire tune because you can play all the different inversions of that chord and you keep your hand frozen in the middle if you feel like it. And I, I wasn't really getting anywhere. I said to my father, Dad, you see how hard I'm working? He goes, yeah. When the heck am I going to be able to blow jazz? And he looked at me and said, when you have to. And then he walked out of the room. Uh. When you have to. And that brought me to everything that I believe in now, that I have to do this. As, as the president of Neil Hefty Music, it's my job to keep his music alive. And you keep the music alive by taking it to the people. And in particular, young people, because they're the future. Right. Young people now have been exposed to all of this music because they have the internet. My stepson, who's in his late 20s, so he's almost as old as me, uh, he's heard all this music and he likes it. You know, as well as every other kind of form, form of music there is. Uh, I've been to a couple of jazz festivals this month. Uh, the Newport Beach Jazz Festival and the Playboy Jazz Festival at the Hollywood Bowl. I'd say at least 20% of the people there were between the ages of 15 and 30. So the fans are there. I have to bring this music to the people to keep it alive. So there's my clarity. Yeah. Or else I shouldn't be the president of Neil Hefty Music. I could have another person be president. I can just like what I like. But it's my duty as, as a company owner to do this. And so uh, I have my goal set. I have to learn how to play. So that day has come. I'll learn how to play jazz when I have to. And I now have to. However, realizing that it's something that I should have started at age five, and that's when most jazz players start, right. and they never stop, I can hire the players around me, the keyboard players, the horn players, the great singers, who will make my lack of, of experience, they can minimalize this. Right. And I only play the notes that I'm sure of. I can't make a mistake up there on stage. So even though when I'm in my room, I'm playing all parts of the song all the way through, when I hit the stage, I'm not littering the audience with, with practicing, right? you know? So I pick my spots and I put what I can play to use mm. and it will get better and better and better and better. Right. And I'm a lucky guy that way. 
But if somebody wanted to hire me as a jazz guitarist and I had to hold down a seat, I couldn't do it. Hmm. That's amazing. So to, this is my only yeah. my only chance to work. So it's gonna it's gonna take time, and I have the rest of my life. And on my last day living, I will play my best on stage. That's where you plan to die is on stage. Well, I don't know if I want to die on stage. I think that would be a little traumatic. It would, you know, if you were there filming it and doing a podcast or, or whatever kind of cast is going, that might be fun. Well, if God forbid it happens, I'd like to be there for it. It would I, be I'm nice to do it. it at the after party <laughs> with all my friends and family. Uh, you know, maybe I play at uh, the Blue Note in New York or, or uh, you know, Birdland or something, and the after party would be great. And after everybody leaves and I have a few loved ones, I uh, close my eyes and go to sleep. Yeah, that would be that great. would be, that would be beautiful. Nice. Yeah, we yeah. should all go that way. We, we can't write the ending, but it, uh, yeah, there you go. How did you find the musicians that you work with? Oh, that was kind of the easy part. Uh, I have a, we find out through, through mutual friends. In this world of entertainment, we get most of our work from our competition, let's say. That okay. was just an easy way to say it. Uh, they're friendly competitors, but we give each other work. If I can't do something and a job comes in, I'm going to give it to a really good player right? because I don't want to sully my name with picking a bad person for somebody who asked me to play, but I couldn't play that night. Right. So I pick another person. I pick the best person I know. And that person usually pays me back. We get all of our work from other people. And I have a, uh, a friend in the business. His name is Andrew Robbins. And he's uh, in the publishing business. And Andrew's father, Marshall, and my father, Neil, were best of friends in the old days. Publisher, songwriter, they go together. They played golf all the time. They went to events together. And so Andrew and I, when we reconnected, when I came back to Los Angeles in 94, we became friends, you know, and, which we had never been before because I had only known him when he was too young to be my friend. He was seven and I was 14 or 15, right. you know. That's not going to happen. And, and so, but now he's a... He's a major publisher, and uh, we hang out occasionally, and I had told him of my intention of starting Hefty Place Hefty, and he loved it, loved the idea. He said, come to me for help. I, I love your family. I love you. Let's, let me help you. Right. Love it. So about a half a year later, this girl, who also knew him under the same conditions, confessed to him that, you know, I love pop records, and uh, yes, I, I, I was on these shows that are on television for, for singers and everything like that, and, and, and I've got all the chops to do anything I want, but I really love jazz, Andrew. That's really what I want to do with my life. And he said, oh, really? Well, in that case, let me introduce you to somebody. And he put us together, and we met for tea in North Hollywood, the gal and I, and I'm looking at this 25-year-old beauty with all the vivaciousness and spirit that anybody could ask for. And she was right up my, my vision yeah. for my band. I didn't want a collection of people from my father's era right. you know, who knew the music, but they weren't my age. Right. Not that Devin's my age, but I wanted young people with me. And so I invited her to my house for a sing-along, and it was like singing with my sister. Hmm. And she, we, we've been partners ever since. That's how I met her. She made the whole thing possible to actually spend money and time on. So the minute I found her and I realized I had my partner in front of the band 
as a duo. Right. She could sing all the female parts and she amazing voice, a professional singer who can earn her living as a singer. Right. Another thing I can't do. Uh, I, I can sing background, you know, but I, I never went for the singing career. She did. Amazing singer. Can't say enough about her. I went to a producer friend of mine, Bill Carruthers, who I had met because his father was the director for the Soupy Sales show in Detroit. Do you know Soupy Sales? Mm, I mean, I know the name. But Look him up when yeah. you get out of this, the Soupy Sales show. And he brought the Soupy Sales show to Los Angeles, where Soupy gained fame beyond belief. Everybody wanted to get hit by a pie from Soupy on Soupy's show, major stars. And so his father directed that. My father produced the Soupy Sales show album for Reprise Records in 1963. That's how Bill Carruthers and I became friends. Oh. I went to Bill because I'd been out of the active music business for a long time. I didn't know the players in town here. I knew the players from 1970. I knew the players in Santa Barbara. I didn't know the lay of the land here. And I didn't want to spend three years rehearsing bands and finding the players. Because right. that can kill an idea. Sure. I had my girl. She wanted to work with me. So I asked Bill to put a band behind me. He did. We had three rehearsals. We went into Capitol Records and we, we shot and recorded, shot on video and played live the three tunes to get this whole thing started. He built a website for me. We put these videos and the tunes up on the website and there were no overdubs, no cuts, no nothing. I wanted to let prospective booking agents and clubs know exactly how we looked right. because it's easy to make a record and you get overdubs and but you can't really replace that you can't reproduce it on exactly, stage right. and so why show somebody a doctored photo of myself and then get hired for a movie and i walk into the casting person's office and they say this isn't you this picture isn't you i want the guy in the picture i don't want you and i didn't want that to happen musically so i made a, a website that any booking agent or or music director for a club would be able to see and say, I'm going to get this audibly and I'm going to get this visually. I either like them or I don't like them, but what I see is what I'm going to get. Mm. And I started sending it out to the clubs in town. And the first people who responded to me uh, was a club called Vibrato owned by Herb Alpert. It's called Vibrato Jazz Grill etc. And, and Pat Senator was the booking agent for the club. And he also had a trio that would play before all the acts. Hmm. Wonderful man who had been with Herb for decades. And I got the call weeks later from him and he said, you know something, Paul, I get a lot of people here asking for work and my email is flooded with requests and I can't get to hardly any of them but for some reason, your name cut through. I mean, not hefty. an obvious reason? Hefty. Yeah. No, no, he said that tongue in cheek. Yeah, okay, you're right, yeah. And I know this, I know this, and I, and I have that, that's my one advantage. However, you still have to produce. Yeah, yeah, you so gotta. So all things being equal, people will 
well, give me the chance first, right. if all things are equal. Right. And he saw what he liked. And he figured, since I had this uh, history in music and a family name that was stellar and had never sullied the name uh, through bad practices or, or strange music, he gave me a shot. And we played not this May 1st, but the previous May 1st in 2016 was our first gig. Yeah. We packed that place to excess. And it had been my first time on stage since 1986. Wow. And believe me, I, I wasn't nervous. I was just, uh, I don't know what the word is for it. Terrified? Uh, <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> I, I, but I was playing Neil's music and not mine, so I wasn't terrified or nervous, but apprehensive. Yeah. And you can feel that energy going through you, the adrenaline. You yeah, know, sure. I was couldn't quite feel my guitar neck. Yeah. Didn't quite know that if I wanted to say hello everybody, that it wouldn't come out hello every bloody. Yeah. I didn't have complete control of my body. Yeah. But the night was such a success. And Pat, at the end of the show, he had a glass of wine in his hand. He was laying up against a wall and he just said, Man. That was so fine. Let me give you more dates. Nice. And what a blessing. We found our place to be able to learn how to play and make a show. And I think I played eight dates there. There, And we've got one to come in July. We're taking three months off to record the album, let's right, say. Cool. And then our next engagement after July 30th is October 29th, Neil's birthday. Sunday, it's going to be a CD release party if all my plans happen. Right. It's going to be incredible. Well, thank you for sharing this story with me. And as I was sitting here talking to you, I just was feeling so, and this is, I hate talking this way. I was feeling so grateful for my time in LA and the people I've met and just like how it is that I came to befriend the son of the great Neil Hefty, you know, I mean, like, and to study guitar with you and just to develop. I feel the these... same. I'm getting goosebumps just by being with you. Uh, a great friend, a great friend. And I consider myself so fortunate to know you. Oh, no, that's ridiculous. And you've gotten into this kind of a thing so we can work together at least for the last hour or so. Yeah, no, I mean, it's. And uh... I miss you terribly, Jason. Well, the feeling is mutual, and all I can say is uh, the way my life is headed now, I will be here more often. We get it all back every time we see each other. We we don't start from the beginning. We start from the last moment we saw each oh, other. Oh, it was instant. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was like, how long has it been? Starting Three from years, the 30-second hug then, yeah, and then, that we had at the door. And then it didn't matter from that moment yes, forward. Yes, it does. Yeah. Thanks um, for coming into my house. I cannot begin to tell you how much I enjoyed my time with Paul. I've been doling out misinformation regarding his father's illustrious career for decades. I was glad to get my story straight. The sequence of events that led to his being born and us becoming friends brings real validity to the concept of meant to be. Sharing the undertold stories like these are one of the reasons I started learning to fail in the first place. If you like what you heard, please visit our website use our Amazon portal, and rate us on iTunes. Make sure you tell your friends about Learning to Fail, and if you feel so inclined, please consider making a donation on our donation page. That way, we can try failing by free association.